I find my colleague Anna Peterson is such an inspiring person, both as an incredible musician in her role as an oboe and English horn player and teacher, and as founder of Passionflower Yoga. In this conversation, we talk about life's challenges as a performer and the dangers of perfectionism and the importance of self-compassion and how her experience as a yoga practitioner and teacher have supported her both physically, psychologically, and spiritually. Anna's positivity really comes through in her beautiful playing, which you'll get a taste of at the beginning of the episode, and in the way she's navigated some difficult life circumstances. Timestamps are included in the description for the many topics that we touched on during this conversation. All these episodes are available in both video and podcast format, and the transcript will soon be published to my podcast website, leahroseman.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Anna Peterson, and I play oboe and English horn in Canada's National Arts Centre Orchestra. I'm so happy to be here today to talk with Leah Roseman about all things music and yoga. But before we get into our chat, I thought it would be nice to share with you one of my very favorite pieces for oboe and strings, the Mozart Oboe Quartet. Today, we will be listening to the third movement from a performance in 2021 through Ottawa's Chamberfest, along with my friends and colleagues, Yosuke Kawasaki on violin, Paul Casey on viola, and Rachel Mercer on cello. Please enjoy. Thank you. 
Yes, Anna Peterson, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So you're all warmed up and you agreed to share some oboe music with us. So I think we'll just do that now and then we'll get into oboe playing and teaching and yoga and all the things after that. Sounds great. One of my favorite things about the oboe is how sparkly it can play. It just is like the most buoyant, happy, effervescent sound. Now, of course, oboe can play other things other than sparkly things. Um, what really made me hear the oboe for the first time and want to play it, not want, need to play it, was when I first heard Peter and the Wolf as a young child. So Peter and the Wolf, the oboe plays the duck. And here you go, you can hear the quack. job at the NAC Orchestra, I also get to play the English horn, which is really fun. I like wearing multiple hats in my job. I think that's a really unique gift that I have through this, through this job. And so as my job as the English horn player, the English horn is a big oboe. So we move our fingers the same way. The reed, this thing that we blow into at the top is, is similar, but it's a little bit, you know, it's some different uh, measurements. It's a little bit bigger because the English horn is lower. Maybe one of the most recognizable melodies that the English horn gets to play is from William Tell. Sounds like this. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's definitely the oboe is my favorite woodwind instrument. We're not supposed to have favorites, but it really is. And I did play oboe for five years in high school. I was say, didn't you play the oboe? So yeah. Close to you. <laughs> but when I tried the English horn a couple of times, I found it much more difficult. The resistance of the reed, it was very different for me. Maybe did it feel different also to spread your hands a little bit wider too? Did you notice that so since the keys are more spread out? Yeah. Yeah, I just remember the, t the tone production was different. And what I think is might be a surprise to people is that the oboe uses very little air. Well, sort of. If we use mm -hmm. little air, it doesn't sound. So we mm -hmm. have a small opening, but we yeah. actually have to use a lot of air, but there's just so much resistance built in. It might seem like you don't have to. Like the flute, when the flute plays, there's so much air that like maybe like half of it goes out just into the into the... Mm -hmm room but all of ours we have a lot more back pressure so we still have to support we just sometimes have almost too much air so that's what's the, the main challenge of, of breath support with the oboe but don't you have to breathe out before you can take another breath in because there's still yes. yes exactly we have to make room for the new breath if we mm -hmm. don't it's just and we're just going to inflate like a balloon and there's no more room. <laughs> yeah I think I remember feeling lightheaded when I started and I think for that reason I didn't breathe properly yeah, it's a, it's a life project for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I still work in the too. <laughs> so before you join, um, it's been almost 10 years that you've been a member here in Ottawa. Um, you were principal oboe before, so you weren't playing English horn that much before at all. Correct. Yeah, so I was I was principal oboe in the Syracuse Symphony. Mm -hmm. So my English horn had a few years of a, a dormant period, except for when there was some chamber music or... Actually, there was one piece that required two English horns, a Haydn symphony. Mm -hmm. So I got to play second English horn to my friend, the English horn player. So that was kind of fun. But for the most part, it took a little break. Um, and then I just got to, to reconnect with that when I moved to Ottawa, which was really mm -hmm. nice. I was surprised when you were playing these excerpts, you were playing from memory. I know they're just little snippets, but it's just so much in you. Do you <laughs> practice this music without the, like, do you don't need the music often for well-known solos? Well, I think one of the things about the way that I was taught was um, my teacher was really, I went to the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York, and my teacher is Richard Kilmer. And he was very, very good about focusing on these excerpts that are really common, that you'll see on auditions, that you'll see that you wish someone had warned you about when they show up on your stand in orchestra. And so because we focused so much on these little snippets, I guess they're just sort of ingrained when I'm practicing them for our concerts of course I'll use music make sure that I'm remembering all the articulations and all the details correctly but 
especially right as spring, it's pretty fresh. We just did it a few days ago. So yeah. So um, our colleague Chip uh, Charles Chip Heyman also studied with Richard Kilmer. And when I was preparing for this, I actually was doing research about him because I knew he was a very famous Omo teacher. And I have some wonderful quotes of his that I found. I'll send you the link for the book later if you haven't read it. So I thought this would be interesting to talk about. So one of them was, <laughs> the oboe is an inanimate object. It can't fight back. Don't blame the oboe. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> very important reminder for sure. <laughs> but it is Another fussy, one? right? I mean, there's the... You know, we have to talk about the reed making and all that, which people may not be aware of. Yeah. Should we dive into that now? Reed making? I think so. And I will say for those uh, listeners who didn't listen to my interview with uh, Christopher Millard, our principal bassoon player, who's just retiring, we got into reed um, making and the physics of sound production quite a bit with him. But um, we didn't really talk about the making of them. So maybe you could talk about that and show us a little bit for those watching the video. Absolutely. So for one of the things that... They don't really tell you when you're a little kid. You hear the sound of this double reed instrument, whether you choose the oboe or the bassoon, and you fall in love with this, and you just can't imagine doing anything else with your life. And then you realize that there's a whole component to the instrument that we make a part of it. So we make the reed the part that we blow into. And so the the reed starts from a, a piece of wood. It's actually it's called cane, and it's in the bamboo family. So you can see there's these lovely sunspots on it. It's a hollow tube. And through a series of, of measuring and cutting and using all this different machinery, we use profilers, we use bassoons, we use that more than oboe, but we use pre-gougers, we use gouging machines, which are these incredibly complex um, machines that deal in micrometers. Um, we, and we use um, as a staple that's a metal with a cork that fits in the oboe. Um, and you, it's just, anyway, you have to be like a craftsman in, you have to be an engineer, a woodworker, a metalsmith, all this stuff that, yeah, we didn't realize, but you're kind of in, in too deep to, to not do it. That's the only option. You have to make reads. And so, um, what people might not realize is how much of the time double read players have to spend making reads. And so practicing can sometimes feel like a luxury actually mm -hmm. when we, because most of our time is is perfecting the reed that we that we play on. There's there's a difference between the oval reed, which is here, it's a little bit oh, smaller. Can you hold it more? Yeah. yeah, there we go. And then the English horn reed has no cork, just metal, a little bit bigger. So side by side, you can see they look similar, but a little bit different. So lots of our time is spent perfecting that craft because in order to practice what we need to practice. We need our reeds to do what we're asking them to do. So yeah, it's a it's kind of a, a hidden little thing that most people might not realize about double reed instruments. But it's How also so satisfying when you get one that works. It's just like the best feeling. <laughs> so in your reed case, when you come to work, do you have about ten reeds ready to go, or three yeah, reeds? Yeah, I would or... say that's a, maybe a round number. I wouldn't say all ten of them would be ones that I would choose for the concert. What I try to remind myself is, you know, Anna, you can only plan one read at a time. <laughs> so if I don't have 10 amazing reads ready to go, I think I'll still be okay. <laughs> and how do you manage your routine with read making every week? So my philosophy for read making, some people are very calculated and they have a schedule. Mm -hmm. um, my read making has kind of evolved to just be what I need to do, like what, how much how much time I need to spend on reads is dependent on what kind of music I'm playing. Mm -hmm. So if I'm playing a really a very demanding um, contemporary program where there's just the range of the oboe is really challenged from the lowest notes all the way to the highest notes, loud, very like hard articulations, um, that kind of playing, we joke that it's, we kind of eats reads. So we mm -hmm. probably have to make reads a little more often when we're doing that kind of heavy lifting. Um, whereas if it's a program that, I'm, I'm not playing as much loud repertoire and it's a little bit more of a, of a easy week. I might not have to spend quite as much time. So I just gauge it based on what I have to do that week. It's very yeah. different week to week. It's interesting what you said about eating reeds. So I think for people that have never seen a double reed, like if they can imagine when you take a blade of grass and you blow on it, it'll work for a few minutes and then it will kind of, it'll get limp. So it's, it's the same thing, except there's two reeds vibrating against each other. And how long would a, a read often last? How many hours of playing do you think? Oh gosh, that is a great question. I think 
sometimes I have reads that last for one practice session or one rehearsal. Wow. And then I have reads that last for three months. So because it's a very, like it's an organic piece of material that grew mm-hmm. in the ground, just like no two flowers look alike, no two pieces of cane are going to be alike. And some of them, depending on what climate you're living in, how you play them, what the growing conditions of that piece of cane were that day in the south of France where it comes from, it can really depend. It's not a, it's not a set formula, which is, you know, it's one of those things we just have to accept that we have to learn to be flexible, to be adaptable and resilient with our very unpredictable read situation. <laughs> hmm And I was thinking like for people starting out in band programs, they would often use a plastic read, I think, or a pre-purchased. And so they might be disappointed in the sound coming out, but that would be a lot of it. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's definitely safer for beginners to start on those plastic Mm -hmm. reeds because if you're not really used to being so careful about something, you can walk into a wall or, or snag it on a piece of clothing and it's broken and the, and the plastic ones do, do last a little bit. They're, they're longer, but they are certainly, uh, certainly a sound. It's certainly yeah. a sound. I think, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not a long-term sound, but it is a nice option for beginners. Yeah. So the oboe, I think the ancestor is called the sham. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes. Yep. Cause I remember hearing recordings and it sounded like, like it's very obnoxious. Like it was meant to be used in military mm-hmm. bands outside a little bit like those plastic reeds, just like kind of nasal mm-hmm. and. Exactly, like as loud or louder than trumpets, yes. Yeah. But in yeah. Vienna, they still use a different kind of, like a, a more narrow, softer reed. Is that right? Like there's still a different tradition you know, in oboe that's playing? that's a good question. I'm not sure. I know the Vienna oboe is a different uh, key work mechanism than what mm-hmm. we have in North America. But I don't, to be honest, I don't know. What I do know is that, um, well, I studied three semesters of Baroque oboe when I was mm-hmm. at East which was really fun. Baroque oboe just looks like a recorder with the, just the open holes and only one key on the bottom. And the difference of the reeds is also pretty unique. They're much bigger, even bigger than my English horn reeds, and you have to hand shape them. So for the oboe and English horn, we have a, a, a machine and we have like um, some metal some, um, parts of the reed making that are like set measurements. But when I made my Baroque oboe reeds, I made them, you have to kind of do a little bit more eyeballing, which was a whole nother set of challenges. Um, so it was just a little bit more raw, but I found that playing the Baroque oboe with less of the, you know, technical and um, advanced mechanisms, I had to rely a lot more on my air and mm-hmm. a lot more on my my ear. I couldn't really rely on the, the cushy, really advanced um machinery that we're used to I had to do it a lot more myself and so that training playing baroque oboe I felt like that was really valuable to translate it to my modern instruments because if you play with this nice technology these really advanced mechanisms on the oboe and the English horn plus that kind of voicing and that air and that singing that you have to use on a baroque oboe that's what we should be doing all the time so that was a nice nice reminder for me to just not rely only on how how helpful these instruments can be, but also to have my contribution as a, like with my air and my voicing. Hmm. Can you explain? I'm just trying to understand what you mean about the air and how it differed. Like the reed's bigger, so there's less back pressure. Yeah. So, the so when I look at my when I look at the oboe, you can see yeah. there's like a million keys. It's really there's a lot of intricate mm-hmm. um, development over the hundreds of years. Oboe has just gotten a lot more. Um, user-friendly, let's just say. Mm. And so when the Baroque oboe um, came into existence, it didn't have any of this key work. It just had one, two, three in the left hand, Mm -hmm. one, two, three in the right hand, and one key for the pinky on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And that is quite different than what we see here. So with all these bells and whistles that we have now, it makes some things easier, but we have to remember to still play it. It doesn't play itself. Just like you said before, it's an inanimate object. We have to play the oboe. So you really have to play the Baroque oboe, but we, uh, we need to remember that same kind of effort for, for this with all the, the fancy key work. Yeah. Um, the other quote I had of Richard Kilmer, you might enjoy. He said, <laughs> I'm proud to be a music educator. My philosophy is wherever you are, if you turn that into the best thing in the world that you can be doing at the time, there will be other opportunities. In the meantime, if there aren't, you're happy where you are. 
If you're waiting for something good to happen and not taking care of where you are, it's not going to happen. Oh, I love that one. That's so true. That is a perfect summary of his outlook on life. I love that. He would always remind us too that there's a place for everybody. You know, whether it doesn't have to be one one size fits all. You're not going to only play this kind of music with this type of group. You know, there's there's a, there's room for everyone as a musician. So when that stress would kind of creep in and when you're in school of am I going to get a job and I can be able to make a living doing this, he would just his his outlook of positivity with there's room for everyone. And if you enjoy what you're doing, that just sort of let us all exhale a little sigh of relief and just trust the process a little bit more. Yeah. You mentioned that you had heard Peter and the Wolf as a child, which I think a lot of us heard. Certainly, I think that was my first, um, I remember hearing a record of it, you know, to hear the oboe. And your parents were teachers. They were music teachers or? Yes. Yep. So I heard, so my, my, my mom was a, a general music teacher, like an elementary music teacher. Mm-hmm. And my dad is a retired band director. And so I started piano lessons with my mom when I was really young, but I wasn't really passionate about the piano. I, it was okay for me, but I, you know, would quickly get distracted and the lessons were very, you know, very non-scheduled. Um, so I was a little bit more interested in, in playing a band instrument. So my dad brought home a flute for me when I was in second grade. And I liked, again, I liked the flute. I thought it was fun, shiny, you know, sparkly, <laughs> which I love sparkly things. But it was when my parents took me to the Milwaukee Symphony. I grew up in um, a suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And they took me to hear a kid's show at the Milwaukee Symphony playing Peter and the Wolf. And I heard and saw the oboe and I thought, I want to play that because it's different. I didn't know anyone else who played the oboe and I wanted to sort of be absolutely my own person. And so here I am. (laughs) But you can't start the oboe too young. I mean, the flute, was it a smaller flute? Because there's a certain size? I don't think it was a different size. I think the flute that I had was a closed tone hole flute. So professional flutes have more resonance when their tone holes are open and Mm -hmm. you have to position your fingers, the pads of your fingers to cover them. We have a little bit of that on the oboe as well, not quite as many as the flute and the clarinet. But um, so the flute that I tried was all closed. It was it was Mm -hmm. meant for a young player. So it made it a little bit easier to get a sound out. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. I think the way that the the oboe has you stretch your fingers. If you start too young when your hands are too small, it can unfortunately add a little bit of tension and it cannot feel so good. So a lot of times you're right. Most oboists start not super, super young, like a violinist might start at age two sometimes, right? You well, don't really three. Need to <laughs> yeah. <oboists. laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you were in um, Eastman, which is a super well-regarded music school, Um, Was the atmosphere there, was there like competitiveness or was it like a supportive environment? It was absolutely supportive. I remember going to school there and, you know, everyone has those butterflies when you start and you're you're new and you don't know anybody and you're in this brand new state. Your family drops you off. Goodbye. Good luck. See you later. You're like, ah, what do I do? And at first, you know, there's always a little bit of sussing out. You know, I remember these conversations people would have of, well, how many hours a day do you practice? And that was sort of the benchmark of like, well, are you amazing if you practice seven hours a day? And anyways, once everyone, after the first couple days, everyone realized that everyone was actually really nice. And so that kind of competitive comparison about how much you practice sort of dissipated. And everyone was so, I mean, it was like you automatically had something in common with everyone. And going to a music school like that is really challenging it's quite demanding and stressful and it's way less so if you have a village that can help you and so I think everyone that I went to school with had that mentality of let's help each other rather than you know get in the way of each other and that made it I just I feel like going to Eastman was one of the best choices I've ever made in my life Mm -hmm. loved it and you started playing with Rochester Philharmonic when you were quite young right yeah so that was another kind of amazing opportunity that just worked out. I guess I was in the right place at the right time. So I did my undergrad at Eastman and um, I, between my third and fourth year, so between junior and senior year of of undergrad, there was a part-time opening in the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra for 
the B contract second oboe. And we all took the audition because why not? It's in the same building. We share the same stage. I lived right across the street. It could not be more convenient. And I, I somehow it was a good day and I won. So I started my last year of undergrad. Um, I thought it was going to be perfect. I thought I was going to be playing part-time in this orchestra and I was going to be finishing my, my school. Well, it was interesting because at that time, the Rochester Philharmonic, or RPO is what they call it, had, um, had an incomplete oboe section, and they were hiring a principal oboe. And so I joined thinking I was going to be part-time, but I was thrown in the deep end with no water wings, and it was amazing. I got to play full-time right off the bat. I played some principal, I played some second, and that's when I really started to play some English horns seriously, mm -hmm. was in RPO. So I bought an instrument, and... Through a series of auditions, they wound up hiring a full section, and um, and but it was great experience. The first few years in that job, I was I was filling in full time, and I just learned so much. It was it was a very very educational and valuable experience to play there. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I wound up not going to grad school. That yeah. was kind of in you know in lieu of grad school. That that opportunity was just great. <laughs> Yeah. It's interesting. You use the, the words we always use in the music business, I've won a job, but people not in our business of orchestra playing might not realize it's like, it's like a competition and that's the feeling, right? Like there's a lot of competition and you're the one person. So it's like a prize to yeah. have this yeah. coveted job. It's true. It's so, it's, we're the, I think we're the only profession that talks about winning a job. It's not it's not getting offered a job or having a job interview. Yeah. <laughs> so our interview is um, there's a carpet that walks you from the backstage area. You are a number. They have no idea if you are old or young. They have no idea of your gender, of your experience. You just walk out on this carpet. So they can't even tell by your, your cadence of your footsteps or if you're wearing high heels or not. And you walk out on stage by yourself to this empty concert hall and the committee is behind the screen way out in the back and you just have to play the, the they give you a list of excerpts, some of the ones that I played earlier in this interview, um, and you play them and if they vote enough people on that committee of maybe 13 people or so, if they vote yes, then you get to do it again the next round with a different set of excerpts. And you know, it just sort of seems like the stars have to align for those things to happen sometimes because so many great players will play their hearts out and play really well. But if the committee just doesn't prefer their sound, they don't say yes. It doesn't mean that they're not excellent. It just is like my friend has this saying that, well, Anna, you were selling a red door and they were buying a brown door. <laughs> And I love remembering that because just because you don't advance in an audition or for our job interview, it doesn't mean you're not, you shouldn't keep going, you shouldn't keep trying. But it's a, it's a pretty unique way of hiring. And so it feels like the best gift whenever it is that the, when they say yes and they offer you a job, it feels like, oh my gosh, I won. <laughs> ah, I can't believe it. They said yes. <laughs> So you um, teach university students and you coach high school students who are going to the profession. I'm really curious what kind of advice you give them about auditions and preparing excerpts and mindset and all of that. Oh, that's a great question. So, well, I have students that are anywhere from very baby beginner students all the way up to retired breast cancer surgeons and virologists with the WHO. So I have just an incredible range of, of people I work with, but for university and high school students that are that are looking to um, to further their career and to to look into the to doing this professionally to go to um, music school or to audition for orchestras, um, I think my my biggest encouragement is just to do more of it. So as many opportunities as they have to take an audition, whether it's for the youth orchestra or for Kiwanis Festival. Um, you know, or just to play a recital for friends and family. Anytime that you have audition and performance experience, you know, I can talk until I'm blue in the face, but they will always learn these valuable lessons and whatever that is, whether it's, oh gosh, well, I learned I need to eat a bigger breakfast that morning. Or I learned, okay, I need to make my reads in a little bit different way to, to play.
play the way that I want to play. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a really nice way to practice um, self-compassion because I think um, musicians, I think most of us are drawn to this profession that we're pretty, um, pretty prone to perfectionism. <laughs> There's a pretty high, uh, high standard that we all set for ourselves with our playing. And that's a great thing because it means that we, you know, have, we make opportunities for ourselves, we perform, we get to share this with other people. But if it gets too out of whack and we're really hard on ourselves and we just we beat ourselves up and there's this kind of unhealthy um, negativity and negative self-talk, um, that can really get in the way of our playing. And so that's one of the other things that I really try with my students is to focus on the, the growth part of it, the what did you learn and what can you do better next time if you're not happy rather than, well, that was a failure. So just trying to encourage some positive, um, some kindness towards oneself with just recognizing their hard work that goes into it and that there is no such thing as perfection in this industry. We're human and it's, that's a lifelong project, project for me at least, is just to yeah. continue to learn myself. So trying to help my students have that mindset as well you're such a beautiful and lyrical player and you know I think there's of course there's a a range of natural talent but I do think we we like we absorb certain things that enabled us to do that so when you're teaching how do you encourage people to play what we call the long line like usually the problem often is that it's noty that we hear a series of notes with people who are still developing well, I like to explain it kind of like a sentence, you know, so like you and I are talking right now and I didn't just say you and I are talking right now. <laughs> and so I say that to my students. If I, if I introduce myself to a student and said, my name is Anna, that would be, of course, very weird. And they would look at me like, I'm not sure I want to play the oboe anymore. Who's this weird lady? But <laughs> so I try to think of it as hi, my name is Anna, and we can translate that into our, our phrasing. In if it's the, the oboe, most instruments have a, a singing quality, but I think the oboe is really, really close to the human voice. The way that we use our body to, to spin notes, to sing notes, we do think of a lot of ways like singers do. So all the more, when a singer performs, they take these big breaths and they have these long lines. And so I kind of we think like singers, we think in terms of sentences, and then sentences become paragraphs, paragraphs become, you know, novels. So I try to think about it with that and, and ha- encourage them to imagine how they would give a speech to their high school class, how they would want to, they would want to stand up tall, and they would want to say these really easy to understand sentences, and so trying to do the same through the oboe. Mm-hmm. Do you sing as part of your practicing? Um, sometimes, um, I did sing, uh, I did sing in my choir growing up a little bit. Mm. I took choir in high school and we had to sing at Eastman. We had to do, you know, our, our music theory. We had to do a bunch of singing, um, in that. I thought about taking secondary voice lessons for a while. I just wish there had been more hours in the day. I didn't have enough time in my schedule, but, um, I do, I, I do when I demonstrate to my students, sometimes I'll demonstrate on the oboe, but Sometimes I will demonstrate by singing, even though I'm mm. not a great singer. I try to show that, that it can be through the voice or the oboe, and they're kind of interchangeable. So we've talked a little bit about self-compassion, a little bit about breathing, and how about yoga? <laughs> it's a huge part yeah. of your life. Yes, yoga has become a huge part of my life in the last few years. So um, I am now a certified yoga teacher. I've done two Full trainings in Bali, Indonesia, and um, I yoga has just been. I think of my life oftentimes kind of before yoga and then after yoga. Like that's for me a major turning point in how I really approach literally everything. <laughs> um, one of the things you know that was really that really drew me to it at first was the physical. Of course, I love the idea of I love exercise. I'm always an active person. So I loved that. I loved moving. I loved getting stronger and and that. But then I quickly realized there was just so much more to yoga than just getting in shape. Um, When I started the oboe all through high school and really through Eastman, um, I dealt with some pretty bad tendonitis in my Mm. forearm. 
Um, and that was just tension from my, my lips. The way you hold the reed is called the embouchure, and that can travel down into the neck, shoulders, through the arms, into the fingers. And so I was playing in chronic pain, and I didn't, I was just, I had to like suffer through it, and it was so, so unpleasant. I went to a lot of physio, physical therapy, chiropractic, and those really helped, but putting those together with my yoga practice has helped so much. I Every once in a while, I'll still be in pain from time to time, but it's nothing like it was. And I really attribute it to yoga and just sort of the, the physical body awareness and breathing. And um, so, yeah, so the physical has helped so much, but also the mental. So I had no idea until I allowed myself to practice yoga and get quiet and really listen to my inner dialogue of how I was speaking to myself. Once I realized that I was so negative to myself, I was just, I would say things in my head, some self-critical comments that I would never say to anybody else. And so then I realized like, oh my gosh, well, if I wouldn't say this to somebody else, why the heck am I saying this to myself? That is, no one is going to do better if they're constantly being beat down. And so the yoga just has really helped me to, to be nicer to myself, actually. And, and when you're nicer to yourself, then it's more fun to play. And when it's more fun to play, it's more effective for the audience. And when the audience is happier, then they want to keep coming back. And so it's just sort of this cycle of positivity. So, yeah, that's been one of my favorite um, benefits of my yoga practice is just that. It's how it affects my musical life. And, you know, this I mentioned earlier about how uh, musicians, we tend to be a little bit um, prone to perfectionism. <laughs> crippling perfectionism in fact um, and the thing about yoga is there's no yoga performance it's not there's no concert reviewer there's nobody taking you know photos of you and your practice how you're how you're doing it's it's just a way to be absolutely present to notice what is happening in your body to be connect to your breath and it's just it's such a nice reminder that that we can approach our music world like that if we choose to as well. We don't have to be so worried about the the external, the, the validation from a reviewer or from colleagues. You can be a little bit nicer to yourself, a little more gentle. And so that, for me, the, the combination of music and yoga has just helped me a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to ask of um, about Passionflower Yoga. But before we get into that, I was just curious, like, do you incorporate certain routines pre-performance or even pre-practice? Absolutely. So before I practice and before I perform, I'll oftentimes go through some breathing techniques. So there's breath techniques that are really good for reducing anxiety, mm -hmm. really good for just calming your body, calming your nervous system down. And, you know, it's normal to get nervous before a concert, I think. It means you care. So mm -hmm. that's also what I try to tell myself and my students. Like, if you're a little nervous, that's okay. It's a good thing. Um, but just to keep it in check, so I do do a lot of breathing. Um, uh, meditation has been a really big um, benefit as well as just calming my very loud, chattery brain from time to time. And then, yeah, the physical component, doing some upper body stretching and opening. If I don't have time for a full class, you know, an hour is sometimes a long time for a busy schedule. But even just three minutes of certain stretches will really just kind of realign myself and I just feel ready so it depends mm. on the day but yeah I absolutely use it before a big practice session or before a big concert so opening type postures yeah. opening and relax and um and just yeah arms shoulders upper back that's a real big we that takes quite a beating when you do a lot of repetitive playing but also mm. lower body you know we we always think that our music making is so upper body focused but when we're sitting down, our lower back can get tight, or our hips, our legs. Mm -hmm. So yes, the upper body is the thing that we think of first, but really uh, a friend actually, uh, Carissa Klapashek, our, our colleague and friend in the orchestra at the NAC, she always talks about how musicians are athletes of the micro muscles. And it's true, so it's a full body, just because we're not playing um, you know, a professional organized sport, Think there's a lot of parallels to those athletes we're just athletes in a little bit different way so keeping our bodies healthy is only going to translate to better playing so full body stuff so it's so important mm -hmm. did, did you find when you got deeply into yoga and you're able to do things like you know 
lotus, you know, things like that. Was it easier to sit on a hard chair? Like, did you find the way you sat was changed? Yes. Well, I still can't do full lotus. Yeah. <laughs> Half <laughs> That's lotus, like another life project. But, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that requires some serious open hips to do that. But um, it absolutely did. I used to have some body patterns that I thought were good posture. And I was a dancer as a young girl. Okay. I danced all through my childhood until I graduated. And so I've always been, you know, aware of body and posture stuff, but it wasn't really until yoga that I could connect those principles, but being explained through yoga, they sort of just clicked. Mm -hmm. So sitting up straight and just a way to align, you know, for example, shoulders over hips, ears over shoulders, and then lift up from the top of your head, just sort of one long line. That was something that I didn't really think about until yoga. And then it seems so basic, but those patterns that we learn as a young child, when you learn your instrument, I'm still consciously aware of when they, t they tend to creep in because they're mm -hmm. so deeply ingrained. And so the yoga awareness just helps me go, oh, okay, left hip is doing this or right knee is doing that or just sort of oop, mm -hmm. just dial it back and it's never going to be fixed or perfect, but it's just the quicker I can realize it, it does really help and then I'm in less pain more sustainable did you do any other mind body awareness things like feldenkrais or any of those other paths you know what i have taken uh one feldenkrais class it was a virtual mm. class but other than that no i really haven't um got into alexander technique or feldenkrais so much it's something mm. that i would love to in the future but just haven't yet yeah i was curious about that so passion flower yoga why don't you tell us about your your business. Yes, definitely. So um, before the pandemic, um, in addition to playing in the NAC orchestra and teaching oboe students, I was teaching very part-time um, at my chiropractor's office, actually. I was teaching mm -hmm. yoga once or twice a week at multiple locations, and it was so fun. And I was really looking for a way to get more teaching experience, but nothing had quite resonated and clicked in the way that I thought would work for me. And so then cue the pandemic. I was in New Zealand when the pandemic hit. I was actually playing with the Auckland Philharmonia Orchestra and had to suddenly come home across the world when Canada announced that, you know, you better get home now or we can't guarantee you're getting home. So that was crazy. So we all arrived in this lockdown and everything was changing and stressful. And I had a lot of people ask me, hey, Anna, would you ever do an online yoga class? And I thought, well, sure. And I had no idea what Zoom was. I had no technology. I had my laptop on the back of my futon and I had one little lamp next to my computer. And so I just started teaching on Zoom and then more and more people seemed to be interested and would send me their email address so I could send out the Zoom link and it just sort of naturally grew into this lovely community of people I hadn't been in touch with for a while and, you know, made the world a lot smaller. And so I slowly started to upgrade my equipment. I got some lighting, I got some microphones and learned all of the ins and outs of how to stream a live class um, that would be effective for the people on the other end. And it inspired me to officially start and launch a online yoga studio called Passionflower Yoga. So my business is, um, it's up and running. Passionflower Yoga is, uh, it's a, there's live Zoom classes multiple times a week and then also a whole video library. So right now I have 75 videos that are categorized in, you can search if you wanna have a gentle yoga. So that would be maybe like a yin yoga practice or a chair yoga practice for in between your meetings and your work day. Or if you're wanting to sweat, there's power yoga. You can search by body part, shoulders or hips. Um, but yeah, I have, I have a whole bunch of classes that are still ready to edit. I have like more and more that I'll be adding to the library. And it's just been such an unexpected silver lining of the pandemic. And it's awesome. I just love, I'm very excited to see where it goes. And where did you get the name? I, I think it's a, people use it as an herb or like a tonic. So that's a good question. So right at the beginning of the pandemic, um, unfortunately, one of my very, very dear lifelong friends passed away. Um, her name is Marjorie. And Marjorie was an, a student of mine in Rochester. She retired and had joined the fifth grade beginner band on the oboe of the school that she taught at. That's just what, that's what kind of person she was. She was so 
just so great, so cool, so loving and so open to learning and to life. And so I've always found it funny that she would take oboe lessons from me because I felt like I learned about life from her. And one of the things that Marjorie was known for was her incredible garden. So she taught me all about gardening and her favorite flower was the passion flower. Mm. And passion flowers are, I had never seen one before, but they are these absolutely intricate, unique, gorgeous tropical flower. And so I had just, you know, I was talking with another friend and showing some of my pictures of my passion flowers and, and talking to, about Marjorie. And, you know, this friend said, well, and I can see why you really love these passion flowers, passion flowers for a passion filled person. And so all of this stuff just sort of percolated, just the special memory of Marjorie, just these flowers. Also kind of a nice reminder of passion flowers only stay open for one or two days. So there's mm -hmm. this spectacular show and then they, they are done. And I love that metaphor for us because I think the grind culture in the world, but also, you know, in the music world, there's a lot of like glorification of how busy, how stressed, how run down you are. And I think expecting ourselves to bloom and be fantastic 24 seven is not realistic. So I love the metaphor of passion flower that you don't have to be perfect, beautiful, showy all the time. You can rest and how important that is. So all of those things rolled together sort of just came up with this idea of passion flower yoga. Also, you were meant, you mentioned that it's an herb and it absolutely is. If you have passion flower tea, it can be a real excellent way to calm and anxiety. It can really help with your sleep. So yeah, medicinally and just all these little stories, that's kind of where passion flower yoga was born. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, I'm so sorry to hear of the loss of your friend and, you know, I know you also went through the loss of a job in a very sad situation in Syracuse. Do you want to talk to that and what that was like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we talked before. So my first job was in RPO in Rochester. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, when they eventually hired that full section, I went, I had been playing full time, but then I was, I was playing my actual job I was hired for, which was B contract second ago. So it was a little more part time and that was a nice, you know, I, I kind of realized that it was time to start taking auditions and looking for a full-time job, knowing that I really enjoyed that pace of a full-time position. And so I was fortunate enough to win the principal oboe job in Syracuse, which is just an hour and a half down the road from Rochester. So it was a really, it was such a natural transition. It was, it was not too far from the life that I had known for so long, but it was a way for me to really kind of come into my own and it was a dream come true. I, I couldn't believe it. I had a principal oboe job. I'm getting paid to play the oboe. I got to play so many amazing pieces. And just, yeah, I was in, in shock. I bought a house. I was teaching at Syracuse University. And then um, we learned, the orchestra learned that there was some serious financial trouble in Syracuse and the orchestra went bankrupt. And so that was absolutely um, not, <laughs> not the, the, what my, my trajectory was you know I was of course not expecting that um and it was hard I'm not gonna lie it was really a difficult time it was a you know because what we do as musicians isn't just a job it's you know it's a family it's part of our our heart and so losing a job like that was not that it would be easy to lose any job but it was just very very emotionally tied for me and so um during the grieving process of the orchestra um the, they have they have rebuilt, which is really exciting now. The Syracuse, what was the Syracuse Symphony, is now called Symphoria, mm -hmm. and it's just a different business model. And they're doing great. I'm just so happy to see them thriving in Syracuse again. But it, between what was Syracuse Symphony and now Symphoria, um, I guess the silver lining was I got a chance to do. I was kind of a free agent, and so I got a chance to freelance all over, pretty much the east coast of North America, anywhere from down in Florida to being up for some jobs in the, you know, tri-state area in New York. And then um, our teacher uh, recommended me to come up and play with Chip in the NAC orchestra okay. because he knew, oh my gosh, well, call Anna. She's only three hours away and her orchestra folded. So yeah. And then they did, they were, they did a national audition, but then opened it up to an international audition. And because I am American citizen, I was able to take that and 
yeah. So if you had asked me at the time, had I thought any, I didn't even think I could point out where Ottawa was on the map. I was such a bad American that way. Just <laughs> Canadian geography at the time was, was not, not on my radar, but gosh, now that I live here, I, I just love Canada. I'm so happy here. I'm so glad to be here. It's kind Did of you a find... roundabout way, but here I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was so, it was so chilling to hear what happened in Syracuse. And I think their season was similar to ours. It was very full time. And um... yeah, exactly. That's why I was so excited. I'm like, wow, I can't believe that I, I get this job. So yeah. When the pandemic hit and it was very, very uncertain in our whole industry for quite a while, did you sort of have PTSD like it's happening again? Absolutely. That's yeah. a really good question. And a hundred percent, I felt yeah. some of the same emotions of, of something completely out of my control, taking away what, what I knew as my life. And yeah, I had to work through a lot of those same, it was just like, that was still deep in there, peeling away the layers of the onion to get to those emotions mm -hmm. again. Oh, okay. Well, they're still in here. And some of it is a little bit compounded. You've experienced that kind of an emotional trauma one time. Mm -hmm. And then the next time that you experience something similar, it's almost a little bit bigger types of emotions. And so, yeah, it was hard at the beginning, but I had to, had to sort of just remind myself that there were some key differences. Um, and yeah, yeah, but it's, it's hard. All these situations, it's a lot. <laughs> And when we were lucky because we were able to keep playing through much of the pandemic. We did some broadcasts and record, you know, live streams. But before we were immunized, we were playing together, although distanced. At, but you can't wear a mask. I'm wondering how that felt. Did you feel vulnerable? Were you anxious about it? Oh, totally. I was very, yeah. I, I fluctuated a lot um, with how I would, my comfort level one day would be, okay, I feel really good. And the next day I'd wake up and go, ah, what am I doing? I'm not wearing a mask. So it changed kind of like by the day. But I yeah. do feel that the NAC did a really good job of, of making sure it was as safe as possible. So being spread out was not ideal because it's harder to play together when you're feeling like, you know, you need a megaphone to say hi to the colleague next to you. Um, but I do feel like between masks on and off when we weren't playing, between the spacing, between the mm -hmm. temperature checks, between the, you know, just checking in with symptoms. Um, if anybody had anything, of course, they weren't coming to work. So I figured, and then the ventilation system in our hall was really, really good. And so I felt like, you know, this is about as safe as it's going to be. And then I was just so excited that when we were eligible to have vaccines, that our entire orchestra without even being told they had to, every single person was vaccinated. I just thought that also felt really good coming back to work after that summer when we finally mm -hmm. had access to vaccines that 100% of the people on that stage were in a similar mindset about safety. And that just, mm -hmm. that just helped quell my anxiety a lot. Yeah. So you were mentioning you were freelancing quite a bit uh, between jobs. Um, so you dealt with so many different conductors. And I was thinking different orchestras react differently to conductors in terms of timing. People may not realize what the delay is about. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Oh, for sure. So it's when you're a guest in a new place, um, you know, it's a it's kind of a it's a skill set to just be on super high alert for how that orchestra plays. So their style how they respond to the conductor. So some people play, if the conductor gives a downbeat, some people, some orchestras play right with it. Well, some orchestras, they give the downbeat and it's a, it's a serious delay. And so you have to gauge what that is for that orchestra. If you are used to the first one and you come in too early, you're gonna step in a big hole. And that's something as a freelancer, you really don't wanna do because every time that you go, you want them to ask you back. <laughs> So yeah, it was it was very fascinating to play with so many different groups, so many different conductors. Um, I feel like it gave me a lot of perspective and a lot of really great experience, repertoire, personality, dynamics of people, and how how to work within a section. Just I I just feel really glad to have all of that experience. Do you think some orchestras it's Maybe it's an age thing. They're more hierarchical in, in the wind section. Possibly. I think maybe it has to do with, you know, history of that wind section, how it's always mm -hmm. been. There's like traditions that are set in. Um, yeah, 
I, I think there's a number of factors that can go into that. I really like how our wind section treats each other. I feel mm-hmm. like we're all eight of us. So we only have two in a section for those people listening that don't know. We're, mm-hmm. we're kind of a hybrid orchestra. We're like a chamber orchestra, but we play some big reps sometimes. So there's only two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets, two bassoons, whereas other orchestras might have up to four people in their section. Um, and so the eight of us are really, I feel like it's just such a team and everyone values everyone and supports and encourages. And there, I don't feel that hierarchy in our section. And again, it just, I think when it's that dynamic, at least for me, I feel like it makes me feel really valued. And when you feel valued, you want to work harder. And when you work harder, you sound better. And again, you sound better. The audience enjoys the concert more and then they come to more concerts. So that cycle of positivity is really, um, I think, is present with the way that, that our wind section just has this history of, of respecting each other and working as a team. So mm-hmm. I love that. I was thinking about Peter and the Wolf again and how it influenced you. And during the pandemic, we haven't, most places haven't had children's concerts. We haven't been going into schools. There's been a big void. Um, and I'm worried about that. I really think to get the next generation enthusiastic about our art form, we need to get them into, to listen to orchestras live. Do you have any perspectives on that and what we can do? Well, I mean, I think I'm, I'm hopeful that now that we're learning to live with this virus, that life is returning. Um, I don't think we're ever going to get back to where we were because no one of us is the same as we were. So when people say get back to normal, I don't know if that's really a thing because we're different now. Everyone has changed from this whole mm-hmm. pandemic. But I think the good thing that we're learning to live with it means we're resuming some activities that we used to do pre-pandemic. And that includes live concerts and kids' concerts. So I think maybe we can find a way to make up for lost time. I know I used to, um, before the pandemic, play in a woodwind quintet that would go to mm-hmm. schools. And we would actually play uh, a version of Peter and the Wolf. And we would dress up. We had costumes. We acted it out. It was such a riot. It was so fun. So hopefully that can start up again. Um, I know the NAC is bringing back kids' concerts again. But... Um, I don't know if there's a way to really kind of make up for the last couple of years in terms of what has not been able to happen. I just think maybe going forward, we need to just ramp it up and do more, have more opportunities, yeah. more, more interactions to just kind of, yeah, make up for lost time. And are you teaching online some students who don't live in Ottawa? Um, every once in a while, I still do Zoom. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Zoom lessons, I feel like, no, it's not exactly the same as being face-to-face. There's always things that you can identify a little quicker, a little bit more effectively in person. But to be honest, Zoom was kind of the next best thing. I found Zoom was really, really helpful. And so, yes, I have some students that are that are not in, in the Ottawa area that will take from time to time on Zoom. But even the students that are in Ottawa, depending on schedules, depending on traffic, if there's a lesson time that it works, but it's in the peak of rush hour and it's not going to be very conducive to the rest of their life, sometimes we'll just still choose to do Zoom anyways. So yeah. I don't think Zoom's going anywhere. You know, I think yeah. we're, I think it's an amazing resource that we have. So yeah. Maybe just to, to circle back to yoga, um, your decision to get teacher training and to go all the way to Bali. So you were doing a lot of yoga at that point and then you really went deep and you did that twice, right? To get sort of a higher level of certification or just to go into it deeper? Um, well, both. So my, so, so I, I practiced yoga. I started, I joined a studio here in Ottawa and then my, my first, when I mentioned that I learned that, you know, yoga helped me to just be a little bit kinder to myself, just mm-hmm. how my inner dialogue was. That realization occurred on a yoga retreat in Costa Rica. So that was the first real kind of, oh, epiphany of there's a lot more to it than just the physical. And then um, I went with a dear friend to that yoga retreat. So the following year, I, I felt this excitement to do a solo trip. And I decided to do a solo trip all the way to Bali. So my first time mm-hmm. traveling by myself, I went about as far away as I could possibly go. And I did a yoga retreat there. So a retreat's not a training. It was just me to attend mm-hmm. This, um, you know, week-long, amazing, uh, multiple classes a day, but also get a chance to do 
local things, travel, experience the food, go to the beach. You know, it was kind of a nice mix of vacation plus yoga. And I fell in love with Bali. I, I mean, the orchestra scene there is not so, so prominent. So I'm not going to probably move there anytime soon, but I would live there in a heartbeat. It's just, it's so magical there. And so I did that trip in March and the following August, five months later, I enrolled in a teacher training. So it was kind of like my undergrad of, of yoga, and that's they they um, they group it in terms of how many hours. So it's always a 200 hour is like your undergrad of, of yoga. And so I did my 200 hour teacher training for the entire month of August. And I did the teacher training thinking, you know, I want to dive into yoga in a really deep way. I didn't know if I wanted to actually become a yoga teacher. I knew I just wanted to learn more and, and um and be fully immersed in it, which the retreats are great, but the trainings are another, another level of just like 12 hours a day. You're studying and, and learning, and it's not just doing downward dog all day. You're learning. You're basically taking a microscope to yourself, and it's, mm-hmm. ooh, it's revealing. Let me tell you, it's hard work for a whole month of that, but boy, was it rewarding. And so that was in August of 2017. And then I just was still feeling this this call to go back to Bali. So the following year in the summer, in, in July of 2018, I went back and I sort of did my, I guess you could call it my artist diploma, which was um, another 100 hours of training. And that was in a specific niche of yoga therapy or yoga therapeutics. So just like in music, you can maybe do a, um, you know, an artist diploma. You can do a performance pr- practice of, you know, like, Baroque, uh, Baroque focus, mm-hmm. or you can do um, a contemporary or a conducting. Like there's all these different ways you can go <clears throat> from your undergrad. You can do that with yoga too. And so I chose to do one in yoga therapy, which is um, kind of combining traditional Chinese medicine and yoga asana or the way that we move our bodies. Mm-hmm. So why would this particular yoga pose be beneficial for if you are having trouble sleeping at night? Or if you are dealing with, um, you know, some anxiety, or if you're if you're feeling um, like you're not digesting your food in the way you want to, like there's all sorts of healing components to yoga that's not just getting in shape. And so that was my second training, and so I love having that that experience to share with my my yoga students that that come to my classes. It's really fun to to share what has helped me so much. I just Whoever wants to listen, oh my gosh, I am happy to share. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. To end these conversations, we often talk about maybe advice people would give their younger selves or, or you know, advice, but we did address some of those things during this conversation. So maybe you could share, I know that you always passionately wanted to be a musician and, and play the oboe is like your big focus, even though you were doing dance and other things, if I understand, yeah, it's really what yeah, you wanted. Absolutely. So many people have never heard an orchestra and I'm just, maybe most people listen to this podcast have, but maybe they haven't. What would you say to people to welcome them into, into our space and and what it's like and why you think it's such a great art form? Well, because I think that it's a way to feel things that you might not be able to explain what you're feeling. So when you hear a certain combination of instruments playing together. If you hear a really loud, full orchestra sound that will literally push you back into your seat, you might have goosebumps. You might, you know, have your breath skip. You might not know what it is, but I think the point of of any art is to feel something. And so I think coming to an orchestra, hearing a recording, you can have that experience as well. Um, seeing a, a live video recording even more. Maybe you can really connect to the, the effort that the musicians are making on that video. But when it's live and you're hearing it and you're sharing, it's a very mutual experience for me at least. When I'm on stage, I will, you know, I'm, I'm sharing it with these people, but also feeding off their energy. When they like, when you see their faces light up or when they kind of gasp, it, it fuels me. So it's very, very... Um, reciprocal that way and I just think you don't have to know anything about music you don't even have to know if you like it but maybe just come close your eyes and be open to whatever it is that stirs up inside of you whatever you feel and 
that's kind of the magic of that is what I love about orchestra. Beautifully expressed. Thank you for that. Well, it's been really great uh, hearing more about your history and your perspectives. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me on your podcast today. <laughs> My life is so enriched by getting to know these incredibly inspiring creative guests and their perspectives on their lives and music. Please follow this podcast and sign up for my podcast newsletter to get sneak peeks for upcoming guests and find out about newly published transcripts.